We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program actor, celebrity Michael Gross. Michael, thanks for calling. And it we're is my pleasure. And we're going to be talking about Tremors, but I wanted to ask a question. What was your like f- fondest memory being part of Family Ties before we get into Tremors? Oh, boy. Well, I... I boy, I, I think the laughter, overall the laughter... Uh, being surrounded by wonderful, wonderful cast and extraordinary writers. Uh, uh, honest to goodness, because, you know, there's, a, there's a, a feeling of safety when there's good writing and, and, uh, and people who, who are doing well around you, the, the people with whom you surround yourself. And so it was a great cast, Meredith Baxter, Michael J. Fox, yes. Justine Bateman, Tina Yovis, the marvelous, marvelous writers, some of whom have gone on to do uh, other wonderful shows. And just, uh, I've always felt as an actor, safety in good writing. And so week after week, I knew we, I was in a safe place uh, and in a good place. And just hearing hearing people's reactions we did you know, we worked in front of a live audience yeah. that being said it's, it's hard to narrow it down because you know being together for seven years is unusual for any actor uh, we're such uh we don't expect to have steady work uh ever we're gypsies right and uh, uh to have gone through all the things we did um uh marriages uh, Deaths, divorce, new homes, uh, uh, child, new children, the births of children, all these sorts of things as a group. And I'm not just the cast, but the writers and the crew. We got to know each other so well. And so it really was quite a family. And that was a that was a very special thing. So it's interesting you talk about a family, a family on uh, the storylines and also a family of everyone of the cast and how much you're, you're so fond of every one of them. So that's, yeah, uh, yeah. You can't help but become close after it. Yeah. It's like what most people do, I suppose, with long, long-term jobs. It's just unusual for an actor. Exactly. And seven years is long for an actor for sure. So Michael, once family ties ended, a lot of times it's hard that you're afraid. Maybe you'll be typecast the rest of your career. And that definitely well, did not happen. It. You got it. And how yeah. did you kind of, make sure that wouldn't happen or kind of reinvent yourself in that way. Neil, I don't make sure of anything. (laughs) I realize more and more as time goes on, how little control I have over things. Oh, uh, you know, uh, and so I worried about that. Would people accept me as someone, someone very different, um, uh, than Stephen Keaton, because, uh, you're in their homes. There's a power in that being in somebody's home every week, for seven years right. and um, fortunately the good people at um, uh, at Tremors uh, Ron Underwood the director S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock the writers of the first Tremors called on me to come in and uh, and uh, and see them uh, audition for them right and when I first got the script for Tremors this horror film with this sort of right-wing paranoid, obsessive-compulsive disordered survivalist, I thought, this has got to be a mistake. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been America's sweetest father for seven years. This is, they sent this to the wrong person. I, was I intrigued? Absolutely. But I thought, they, they got it wrong. Anyway, apparently they loved the audition. I went in, and uh, uh, as uh, the rest was history. 
Uh, and the beauty of it was, within a, a week of the end of Family Ties, I was on the set of Tremors. Uh, within a week of the uh, our cast party uh, and uh, the, the, the the departure going away party for se- after seven years of Family Ties, I was I was on I was on the set of Tremors working with Kevin Bacon and Reba McIntyre, Fred wow. Ward, this wonderful cast, and I thought, well. That answers the question: Would there be work, and would it would it be a, a kind of different character? So, um, thank God for that. Thank God for somebody uh, taking a chance on me, if you will. Exactly, and I think it's different nowadays because so many people do so many different projects and be on three or different four different shows. But at that time, man, it could have been a nightmare for you to say, okay, but getting that opportunity right off the bat with Tremors and the 30th anniversary, we're talking about, you know, 30th anniversaries. This is pretty special time for you, right? For Tremors. And then also thinking about family ties in the anniversary. Uh, you're at, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, we, nobody has any idea. Again, an actor doesn't think he's going to work very long and you don't think that you don't think you're going to be doing a, a sixth sequel right. to a film. Uh, and, uh, I keep playing, you know, the same revisiting this character again and again over the years has been uh, just a, a great deal of fun. I, I, yeah, who knew? Who knew? Uh, some of it's just dumb luck. Now, naturally, when an opportunity presents itself, you have to step up to the plate and prove you're worthy of that presentation. But um, but a lot of it's just luck. So they trusted me. Absolutely. So your character kind of, how did you start just developing it to the point of seven films later? You know, well, uh, in some ways, um, uh, I, if he is a survivalist and I guess I am too, after seven, (laughs) seven films, uh, I survived in some ways because so many other people dropped away. Uh, Kevin Bacon did not care to do the second one. Uh, Fred Ward did the second. Um, Reba never, you know, never wanted to do others. She was doing other things. Um, I'm the one who, who who stayed precisely because this character presented so many comic possibilities. Um, the comic paranoia uh, of the man. The uh, uh, comedy is is in some ways about exaggeration, about excess. And he's nothing if not <laughs> excessive. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I kept coming back anytime somebody said, well, do you want to play Burt Gummer again? I said, of course I do. <laughs> uh, of course I do. He's so wonderfully silly. And, um, and so uh, other people dropped away, and I became sort of the center of a lot of these films merely because other people weren't. Uh, I always considered him an ancillary character. We go back to television history, and let's talk about uh, the Fonz in Happy yes. Days. And I always felt as if the Fonz, the odd man out, always worked best when he was surrounded by the normalcy of the Cunningham family. You know, uh, he he stood in opposition to, to good, normal, everyday America, clean-cut America. And I always felt the same way about Burke, that he had to be surrounded. I never saw him as the center of attention. He had to be surrounded by by relatively normal human beings to show how, how really nutty he was. And so I, to me, the, the rest of the cast is always extremely important because it's only in looking at them that we really understand Bert's excesses. 
Exactly. And that's so true. And it's like, oh my gosh. And this character and it's a cult figure and the show, this, the, the movies are cult classics. And to have the seventh film and the availability of the latest film, plus you can have the whole collection. That's got to be great for fans for sure. It, it really is. It really is. And it's, it's great for me too. I haven't gone back and I only go back and watch them when we make another one. To, to capture the feeling again, to capture the, the ambiance of, uh, of a Bert and that world. Um, so I don't, I don't view them in between uh, much at all, but I know a lot of people do, and God bless them. I, I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, they're the reason. We, I'm grateful for them. They're the reason we keep coming back because, you know, this is all driven by, by sales and, and interest. Um, I'm not sure, you know... Um, and we keep trying to reinvent it with something new and challenging for Bert, not just monster hunting, but um, <laughs> uh, personal challenges as well. That's to me what 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 makes him fascinating. To me is what uh, emotional challenges does he have to deal with? Uh, because monster hunting is easy, and after a while, it gets a little boring. To pick up a gun, shoot it. Pick up another <laughs> gun, shoot it. All uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. But uh, what what keeps him going internally, and what what must he face aside from the monsters? Because of course, <laughs> frankly, I think our, our own, the monsters within are always more difficult to deal with than the monsters without. <laughs> you never knew that a sci-fi comedy would now really be reality with what we've dealt with COVID-19 and the craziness of this year, of 2020. Well, it, it is, it is a little like, um, it is a little like a metaphor for, for COVID-19. And I'm going to tell you one of the things I love about the tremors, uh, series, and this is something that I think could be illustrative in in Congress, in the way we all we've gone to our so many people have gone to separate uh, camps right now, um, and uh, d d defending their their space. Uh, Tremors is all about uh, an extremely disparate group of people, some of whom would never be friends in real life. Uh, certainly. Bert wouldn't even talk to someone else in real life because he's such a, uh, a misanthrope. Um, he, they band, this disparate group of people bands together to deal with a common enemy. Yes. And they realize that the, the common enemy is far much worse than any enmity that could exist between them. Uh, they come together as human beings uh, all in their, from their very different worlds to, to fight something that is a, a, a danger to them. And I think um, and I think certainly dealing with COVID, we could learn to that, but just in general, dealing with, uh, with, with life. I yearn for the good old days of family ties when uh, <laughs> uh, people, yeah. could be on, people could be on very different sides of political questions and, and manage to hammer out uh, compromises. And they can get along, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nobody went to bed without dessert because they were a Republican or a Democrat or on different sides of the aisle. Uh, and the, the, the ties that bound people together were stronger than the things that uh, uh, threatened to tear them apart. So again, again, even though you, I know family ties are still playing everywhere still in some sort of way, we have to have the young people today watch family ties and understand, you know, just because you're a Republican, just because you're a Democrat, just because you're a liberal, just because you're conservative, doesn't mean you can't get along with each other. And that is what we need to do to move this country forward in 2020. I think you're right. And our politicians have to show us that. And family ties, those are the days when a Democrat like 
Tip O'Neill, the leader of the House, Speaker of the House, and Ronald Reagan, two Irishmen could sit down over some Irish whiskey and hammer out a compromise. They couldn't be more different in their political yes. outlook. And yet they found the common <laughs> Irishness <laughs> between them and O'Neill and O'Regan, and they'd sit down and have a drink and say, how can we fix this? How can we make this happen? And that's what we need. It's, it's, it's got to start with our leaders. We can... Um, uh, the show business can can only do so much. Uh, we only have them uh, we only have them uh, once a week or you know, once every few years. And uh, these uh, our leaders have us every day, and so they they've got to lead the way for us. And we've got to elect the people who want to compromise. I think exactly. Well, I appreciate it, Michael. It's available now. Uh, the whole Tremors uh, set, especially the new film Tremors: Shrieker Island. So I appreciate you coming by, Michael, and uh, thanks for stopping by and really reminiscing about Family Ties and also Tremors. And th- thanks for coming on the show. Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much Dick. and uh, be well. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show and we'll be back in just a moment. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security video since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensec's enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit lensec.com. And now back to the show. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Every Child Can Learn segment. And I'm excited to welcome the program from the pact, Phil Maycomer. Phil, how are you and how are you surviving the pandemic? Because the last time we chatted was some time ago. And it's really, we are in a new world going into the school year. You know, Neil, I have to say, slow and steady. I think that emotions can run very high when structure and routine change for people, right? But school is school, whether it is going to exist in a remote learning situation or whether it is in person or whether it's a hybrid, right? And we're seeing so many different types of changes and also some exciting things that people are starting to embrace. And so I say with change comes progress and each step slow and steady. And I think that we're learning a lot about education and the fact that now 
the hybrid model in our area of the country. In some places, they're going hybrid where people are learning what works online, what doesn't work online. We're doing things much better as educators when we're providing online instruction than we did before the pandemic. So there's a lot of good pluses but also some challenges and that's what's all important. But the title of the program again is Every Child Can Learn. And so each episode, we are going to take a question from one of uh, someone who asked a question specifically to you, Phil, right in your expertise that you can answer. And you answer that every month. And now we have a program, this podcast, where you explain the answer to that question. Isn't that correct? That's right, Neil. I feel that you see some commonality, regardless of geographic area, with people asking questions. And opposed, as opposed to answering those one-on-one -on -one to people, I would rather everybody benefit from the answer, right? Because it's all about building capacity and sharing that knowledge. And I get countless questions from the thousands of educators that I have trained and continue to train on a regular basis and mentor and coach. And so I, I just am excited to be able to bring the answers to these questions to a larger audience. Okay, so the question is, how can I best support the social and emotional needs of my students, and where should I start? And this is a challenge, and I'm, and I'm gonna, when I, I hear asking this question to you, Phil, because of the pandemic. Uh, the social and emotional needs of every student in some way has been hurt. The kids do not like change. And we went through a drastic change with quarantine. And it's going to be a process to get any student, any child, and even any adult transitioning back to the workplace and the school environment. So this question really is a very important question to answer at this time. It is extremely important, Neil. You know, when we have changes in instructional delivery like we had so drastically in March of 2020, that we need to make sure that we do what I call comparative learning strategies. Oh, this is how we did this in our school building, and this is how we will now do this in our remote learning session, whether that's a Google Classroom, a Google Meet, a Zoom, whatever that platform is. So doing that in a compared contrast and providing as much structure and routine as possible to keep things, as I said earlier, slow and steady. Our students, families, and teachers need anchors for any type of change, and definitely multi-sensory teaching. And so when we look at social and emotional needs, which you were somewhat describing as like a roller coaster, right? You know, it's some people are just so up and down and up and down. We need to be able to say, what do we know about social and emotional needs of kids. Well, I'll tell you what we know. There are five basic areas of social and emotional learning, and not everybody starts at the right place of support. 
because there's a difference between providing support and providing teaching. Those are two really different things, aren't they? I mean, you've been in education. You know that supporting something versus explicitly teaching it exactly. is very, very different, right? It, it's so different because um, you just children are different. And the way we deliver instruction, the way we see their response depends on so many different aspects. Absolutely. And we need to make sure with using multi-sensory teaching with visual, auditory, kinesthetic, you know, the, I can touch it, I can feel it, I could see it, I could hear it. All of that, we need to teach not just academics, not just life skills to our students, whether it's in a school building or in a remote school classroom, we need to teach social and emotional skills to children. And here's the five areas. We need to teach self-awareness skills. We need to teach self-management skills like impulse control and stress management, which you were just talking about, you know, kids having organizational skills. Then there's also the category of social awareness, like empathy and perspective taking. We also know there's relationship skills with relationship building and social engagement, which can be different in remote learning environments. But the fifth category that I want to talk to you about today is responsible decision-making. Because most people, when they hear social and emotional needs, they think about kids increasing their self-confidence and focusing on a theme of positivity. And although those things are extremely important, decisions define us. Teaching our students good decision-making is going to help them be positive. It is going to help them with their self-confidence. It is going to help them identify their emotions better. They're going to have less stress by understanding responsible decision-making. So it's really all about teaching them problem-solving. And this is the right point A to be at when supporting and teaching explicitly social and emotional learning needs. And we need to do this in a step-by-step -step way. You know I believe in bite-sized chunks and step-by-step -step learning. Yes, and you have to have that. And every type of strategy that you use has to meet those needs of that student. Some, as you said, students respond well to visual. Some others respond to multi, other multi-sensory ways. So when we deliver instruction, we have to identify, first of all, the basic needs of that child understand why they're doing what they do. And then once we meet those needs, then we can instruct them. You know, you're spot on with that. Well, let's take a real specific example as it relates to responsible decision-making. And let's look at a range of children at different ability levels, okay, regardless of their age from special needs to gifted and every student in between, so to speak, okay? 
because that's the every child can learn. If we're looking at responsible decision making, one of the very first things is recognizing, is there a problem or is there not a problem? Okay. And so identifying problems is key to social and emotional needs of kids. Now, if you have a student that is nonverbal, that has special needs or has limited communication, identifying a problem could be a thumbs up or a thumbs down or pointing to a yes or a no or an, a picture that says problem, no problem in some type of visual representation or paired with some type of auditory feedback if they can't speak. But also it could be talking about the what and the why, the cause and the effect for different types of students, right? Like, well, let's watch this video clip. In this video clip, was there a problem or not a problem? Were these two students having cooperative behavior and getting along in their relationship building? Or were they really not seeing each other's perspective and fighting in their science lab? You know, so building that type of understanding, one of the very first steps is, do we have a problem? I always say to people, Neil, that I am more than happy to work with people that want to elevate their instructional practice, but the key word there is want. They, we need to be working with people that want to improve. I'm a lifelong learner, right? You are a lifelong learner because I know you very well, that we're always about improving, shaping, tweaking, and that being that kind of role model for our students especially when identifying problems is key. And then analyzing the solutions, because as you and I know, there's not just one solution or potential solution to a problem. So right there, showing our students of any ability that there are choices of how you could deal with something. And on any given day, in any given situation, whether it's in school, in a building, or in school remotely, because it's all school, right? right? That which is the best solution on that given day? Because the solution you didn't pick on Thursday, for example, could work on Monday in a different yes. situation because some factors could change. And we can we can teach kids explicitly this through problem solution mapping, through video and instruction, and it's just so exciting to me to see the ahas with the kids once they start at any ability level, building their understanding of this. Absolutely. And if you don't look at those things, like you talk about in delivery of the instruction, we first look at the needs. And then once we break down those looking at the needs, then is this instructional level appropriate for that student? Is it something that is going to reach that learner? And when you have a variety of learners in the classroom, am I delivering instruction that will, will be the instruction to get enough understanding out of my class? And I like what you just said there, Neil out of my class, because a class is a community, right? Whether that community is in a Google Classroom or whether that community is looking at little cherubs in a classroom sitting at their desks, right? 
that that community needs to all be cohesive. And by cohesive, I mean, we cannot have different delivery systems and tools that we're using that do not meet the needs of all of our students. Special ed cannot be doing something so diversely different than general education because we will not embrace meaningful inclusion, including teaching our students on social emotional needs. We need to make sure that the tools that we're picking and the methodology that we are using to teach every child assures that every child can learn. And in addition to that, I think we also need, as a component of responsible decision-making to anchor our students socially and emotionally, is to have them self-reflect. It truly is one of the greatest things we could ever teach any child is what are the things that I did well and what are the things I need to improve on? Because that is teaching them the habit of self-evaluation at whatever level they are able to do that at and to be able to be a lifelong learner. Awesome. And I think that people need that want more that have been able to really gain a lot of knowledge to start thinking about, especially the second uh, second part of the school year. Already we've gone uh, through a little bit of the heartache, getting to know our students. Now we identify those problems. If teachers are listening right now and say, you know what, that's making me motivated to when I'm planning my lessons for next week, especially when they're gonna be possibly hybrid lessons, depending what part of the country. Now, I have to answer those questions for myself before planning my lessons, but I want more. What can they do, Phil? One, I think that they need to embrace inclusive models of instructional delivery. And by that, I mean all is all. You've heard me say this before in our previous interviews. All education is special. The strategies that we use, the research-based strategies we use in special education should be used with children's of, children of all abilities in the general studies classroom because they are research-based, multi-sensory strategies that benefit students of all abilities. And that is the basis of the work regarding the PACT framework that I've authored. You can learn more about the PACT framework, which is an inclusive model of education for teaching academics, life skills, social communication, which is related to our social and emotional needs topic that we're discussing today, at aboutthepact.com. That's about, A-B-O-U-T, the, T-H-E, pact, P-A-C-T.com, aboutthepact.com and would love to continue a dialogue, especially about you learning more about how to connect one lesson to the next, to the next, regardless of what you're teaching, but especially right now, social and emotional learning. Well, Phil, looking forward to the next segment. Learned a lot from this. And you always, when I talk to you, even though I still do some tutoring, I wish uh, you get me motivated to want to go back to the classroom, but, uh, you know, the classroom is the world for me now, uh, but it's always great to catch back up into the education field and learn 
from an expert like yourself. So thanks again for stopping by. My pleasure, Neil. All right. You're um, listening to Every Child Can Learn, and we'll be back in just a moment. We do. We do. So today we have Grammy Award winner, country music star. Uh, he has 20 singles in the country music charts. Six of them went in the top five. John Barry, and we have his lovely bride, Robin, joining us. And we're going to talk about music, faith, family, friends, all kinds of stuff. John and Robin, thanks for joining us. We are thrilled to finally get on the screen with you here. <laughs> yes, we are definitely thrilled to be that. And then go ahead, Eric, hit those questions. What question you have for them first? I love, again, the title of their podcast, and Faith, Family, and Friends. It's, it's phenomenal. Absolutely. It's perfect. You, for you. you know why it's called that? Because it's why, the why three most important things in life. Faith, yes. family, and friends. Exactly There's nothing right. more important. You're exactly right. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of us, John, know, know your music. Of course, Your Love Amazes Me is a song that I've, uh, you know, I helped, I helped get you to the top of the charts listening to it. So, um, Thank you, you know, so much. Big, absolutely. And, and I hear, oh, man, I forgot him. I was going to bring in here. You know, I've got a, I almost wore it today, except I decided to wear a, a jacket and stuff. But my, my uh, Georgia Bulldogs, you know, blackout, blackout game day. And I, had, I was wearing my socks yesterday. Um, so I saw that you are Georgia Bulldogs fans. Oh yeah. Go dogs. Go dogs. I, I, you know, their games are some of the funnest to tailgate out there. Uh, I have with friends a couple times and of course I'm from Dallas, so we don't have, well, we have, we have SMU. I think they're six to no right now. Uh, first time since, you know, maybe about the time I was born, but, um, <laughs> You know, there's nothing like going to like a big game. And a Bulldogs game is a big college game. So they're fun. Well, well we had the privilege. As a matter of fact, I'm just finishing up editing today. We had a fabulous conversation with Coach Vince Dooley and his wife, Barbara. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. it was incredible. Growing up in Athens, they were, I mean, he was like my hero. And my dad, we used to go sit on the train tracks um, and watch football games before they closed it all in and made it a total uh -huh. round thing. But you could sit up there for free and watch games. So my dad would take us kids to the games on Saturdays. And and growing up, our we were all the same age as his kids. And so it was just so much fun to get to talk to him and his wife, Barbara. And she is such a hoot. She is so funny. And during the editing, Coach was unusually funny. He was quite chatty. <laughs> quite chatty. And there were times I was just, I was just crying, laughing. It was just hysterical. <laughs> so fun. Yeah. So I can't oh, wait to share. Yeah. Y'all had some, y'all had some wonderful people. I know one, and we're going to, we will get into that more at the end as well. But I know your first guest, is also was his final interview, right? Yeah, the, the legendary Charlie Daniels. And uh, it was just, I've known Charlie for a long time. My first management company was the folks that represent Charlie, David Corlew and his staff. Yeah. And uh, just great, great people. And I got to know Charlie pretty well. And uh, he had, and had me and Hal Ketchum come and do a, 
a remake of uh, the song Long Haired Country Boy. And uh, we had a yeah. great time doing that. And Charlie was just as genuine a guy as, as you'd ever meet. And as nice a fella as you think he might be, you just, you're not close yet, you know? He was just that kind of fella. And he was uh, not hesitant to share his love for people, his, his faith in our country and his love for our country and also his faith in Christ. And he is just a, a right. super, super human being. And I, I'm really going to miss him. Yeah, we um, we had no idea. We we talked with him on a Wednesday, July 1st, and uh, then he passed away five days later. Yeah. And um, wow. it's, it's amazing in that interview, in less than 19 minutes, three times, three times he mentions being in heaven. It's yeah. unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's quite amazing. And just, uh, like that. Matter of fact, there's a, in, in that 19 minutes, Robin asked him the question, uh, you know, when, when uh, I asked well, him, I happened to ask him, I, asked, I had asked John the night before, I said, would you have a problem with me asking him this question? I just felt compelled. And uh, I asked him, I said, I said, Charlie, I said, when you go to heaven to be with Jesus, how do you want people to remember you? And it, it was quite, it was really quite remarkable. It was just, you know, we go back and listen to it. When I was doing the editing, I've edited oh, it very, took very John little. weeks to edit this one project. And I'm like, baby, what's going on? Why are you taking so daggum long to get this done? And he's like, I just can't get through it. Yeah. I cry every time oh, and I have gosh. to stop and I have to start over. And yeah, when I, when I, when I first, the first time I put it on to edit it, we get past the talk where Robin and I are talking and, and the phone rings and you hear Charlie say, John, and just knowing I'll never hear that again. I just got chills. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. you know, just hearing Charlie call my name out, you know, and John and, and oh I tell him, Robin's here. Robin, how you doing? And just, it's just a genuine guy. And, just, and speaking know. of the yeah. Bulldogs, one of the last things he asked me, because he knows I'm a huge Bulldog fan. He says, Robin, how are those Bulldogs going to be this year? Is Tennessee going to be able to handle us? <laughs> oh, awesome. Now, my oh, memories of the Bulldogs, Vince Dooley, he coached when he, Herschel Walker played for them, right? That's oh, yeah. right. And, and then, I remember the greatest game ever. I'm a Pitt fan. Again, John Brown from Dan Marino, 1982, right? At the Sugar Bowl. Yeah. The Sugar yeah. Bowl. They're celebrating 40 – well, 40 years of the national championship is this year, actually. They need to win one, Daggone. I know. Again, come on. <laughs> so you guys We're thinking RG3 may push them through, but. Yeah. <laughs> but it was fun talking to him about um, years ago when he was a coach in the 60s and his, uh, at, at Georgia, and, and his brother was a coach at North Carolina, and they were playing each other in a bowl game. And that was yeah. pretty – he said – Boy, his answer for that, he said, I hope that never happens again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He said it was such a – it divided the family pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but so, we had some, so we've had some great about, conversations. Well, and I, we're looking – I, I want to hear more about them because that's – so a lot of what we talk about here is how we are not just leaving a legacy. Did we lose them? There we go. Okay. Sorry about that. So a lot of what we talk about here is, is not just how we, we're looking to leave a legacy, but how we're living out our legacy today, using our impact to, to using our influence to impact the world around us. Um, and that's exactly what, what faith 
family and friends is about, right? Oh, yeah. you know, yes. The impact that, that we, we have and, and that these people have had in your lives and that you're having in other people's lives and sharing the story. Yeah. Um, it's amazing through no these yeah. it's amazing through these conversations with um what i consider really high profile guests at how we're able yeah. to talk about things that are really personal and close to them mm -hmm. and um they they can share unique stories that sometimes may not have anything to do with their career but are very very important moments in their life and mm -hmm. um it's 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 just a different approach, I think, to talking to some of them. Exactly. Because um, your faith, your family, your friends, they impact not only your, your personal life, but they do impact your career as well. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation Absolutely. about how, how these folks have, they wouldn't be where they are without their family and their friends and their faith. They, they didn't get where they are all on their own. No. They give, they contribute so much of their success to the help of others as well as their, their, exactly. their faith that drives, that drives them. I think, too, another thing that's been really interesting about this is talking with um, some of our guests, in particular Megan Alexander, who's national correspondent for Inside Edition and has a book out called Faith in the Spotlight. She, um, I asked her, um, how does she maintain her community, her her faith-based community, her relationship with other Christian followers? Because, you know, as Christians, that's where we grow and we live our life in life groups or discipleship groups. How does she do that being as busy? And that's an important part of, of any artist or high-profile person is that they are in touch with um, a place that they can grow in their faith. And, right. uh, it's it's wonderful. And she yeah, she's got a group of uh, well-known ladies that they have Bible study every week. That are or, from all yeah, over the all, country. All over the country. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it was quite amazing. Yeah. It's amazing, Eric and I. Well, Eric always asks us faith questions, and we don't really know, right, Eric? Some of the guests that we have on, if they really have, we have no idea going into it. Some of them, and we're like blown away, yeah. like and saying really, and ones that you wouldn't think that we'd have those family conversations with. And Eric, that's what you love about having guests like this on, that you can really ask those hard questions that you don't hear, not hard questions, but you don't really hear in the media, right, Eric? Right, right. And, and it's true, right? You know, when you're a person of faith, you know, when, when Christ is a part of your life, it's just the fruit just flows out, right? So as you're having conversations, it just comes up, whether we're talking about you know, because as we're having these discussions, we talk about marriage, we talk about life, we talk about, you know, how to get into the business. And, and I want to talk to you guys about that as well. You know, you, you got married in what, 1988? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you started off kind of your career together. Um, and, I, and I want to hear kind of what got you into music. But then I'm confident because it, 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 it seems to be everybody's story. You know, well, I'll just start there and then we can go back, right? You know, did it happen overnight? <laughs> oh, yeah. Just just all of a sudden, bam, there it was. <laughs> Country <You> rock <rocking> star. <laughs> that's right. You know what? Clint, Clint Black said the exact same thing. He was like, oh, yeah, it was like two hours. 
Yeah, I was thinking about it and just decided that tomorrow I'm going to be famous. Yeah. <laughs> so, so at some point, you know, that faith, well, the whole way, the faith family and friends, somebody's got to be your support team. And I see that she's sitting next to you. Oh, yeah. um, but also there's, there's going to come that wall where you just want to, you know, you've got a dream. You feel like that's what I'm supposed to do, but you're just, it's just not happening yet. And you want to give up, you know, was there a time that you can remember where that happened and, and what helps you to just press on? Time is it? Um, I think that time is definitely, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I was asleep. This is back when John was playing clubs in Athens and I mean, he played yeah. clubs in Athens for eight years, you know, long enough to have a doctorate degree or something that was actually <laughs> useful. But, um, he came home and woke me up like at three o'clock in the morning. And he's like, we need a plan. We need a plan. I just heard this song and he was. Yeah. I heard, uh, I was driving home middle of the night from playing a club and, uh, DJ said, turn your radio up. we got a brand new song, special song from Joe Diffie. And, uh, this was February of 1992. And, uh -huh. uh, I turned the radio up. I love Joe. Loved, I've always loved Joe's music and turned it up. And yeah. Joe sings a, a new song called Ships That Don't Come In. And boy, when he sang that line, and to those who stand on empty shores and spit against the wind, and to those who wait forever for ships that don't come in. It occurred yeah. to me for the first time in my life that, that I had, I remember dreaming bigger than what I was doing. I mean, I was, we were playing clubs like well, Robin said, been playing clubs around Athens for eight years. We had a huge following, wow. but you get 65 miles away from Athens. Nobody really knew who I was, you know, and, right. and uh, I couldn't do that forever. And so I woke her up and told her about this song of Joe's. And we, we came up with a plan to go to Nashville. We were going to go every six weeks and do an industry showcase. And if, if we, and try and garner some attention. And if at the end of that year, we had not, gotten to a level we wanted or seen progress then we'd punt we'd come up with something else to do so in yeah. may of 1992 we went to a little club called douglas corner we sent out 250 in industry invitations i think nine people were there and that included yeah. my family yeah <laughs> but, one, but on that list of people one guy showed up a fellow named herky williams and herky had heard about me from his sister who went to you went to the university of georgia and she had always told him she, he needed to come here and hear me play. And so he came to this showcase and uh, he really enjoyed what he heard and what he saw. And, and we went out and had breakfast together that night. In late, it was late night. And, um, uh, he called me the next morning. He said, hey, uh, well, he works for Jimmy Bowen, the president of Capitol Records. And, and uh, yeah. he said, Jimmy wants to have, have, have you come over for brunch. And I said, well, we're already back in Athens, Georgia. And uh, so they set up a private showcase for us to come up and play for, for Bowen. And uh, we came up there with the band and we did six or seven songs. Of course, Robin was singing with us as well. And, and uh, we sat down to talk to Bowen and he said, you know, well, I really like what I hear. And he said, I guess you come up here for a record deal. I said, yes, sir, I did. And uh, he turned to David Corley, who was there as Charlie Daniels manager. And he said, Corley, yeah. you gonna represent this guy? And he said, I sure am. And uh, he said, well, you give me a call this week. Let's set up time to get, get them, knock out the details. He said, he said, we're going to do some big things together. So awesome. yeah. off we went. So tremendous story. And you know, Aaron, so how I many, how many, 
you had you had eight years of 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 building up to that moment, right? So you said you had yeah. sing for eight years. Yeah. Locally. Well, you actually you had started. Um, actually, my first album came out in 1979, and this was 1992. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But you know, we went we went to um, we went to dinner that night afterwards with David Corlew and his partner Tom O'Grady, who's passed away in recent years. And Mr. O'Grady, he just a fine man and we're sitting there talking and, and he leaned over to me he said he said i bet you're wondering why you didn't come to nashville sooner he said i know this all seemed pretty simple just to walk in there and do a showcase for born and walk out with a record deal and i said well yeah he said i said it kind of occurred to me he said don't let that bother you he said this was your time he yeah. said any he said six weeks earlier it might not have been the same time he said today tonight was the time so that's said, right. Just move, just march forward from here. Don't worry about what's happened in the past. Just move forward. He from was today. kind of an old guy getting a record deal. I mean, yeah. he was already in his thirties. I was thirty-four when we signed that. So yeah. that's kind of old for Nashville. Oh yeah, that's grandpa around here. Yeah. Now. <laughs> now, okay, so yeah, Eric. What I've been watching is the love between these two, and that's one thing you love to always highlight. Is and that's why you talked about the show. But they genuinely like each other. And that's something that, Eric, we talked about with some of the other married couples that we've had on the show. Uh, and mm -hmm. again, that we were able to learn from saying, wow, look at that. Look at that relationship and how much that love. And Eric, I just wanted to mention that because I know you want to add more to that. Well, I do. So, you know, I, I want to know how, ha have you two always worked together? No. Um, we met our the first time we met i was in college at georgia i think i was 19 and i was um, 25 and uh we my me and a date went to where john was playing and um it was, it was just this guy sitting on a bar stool playing music for a living but my 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 date went to go play pool and uh john comes over to my table and introduces his himself to me and the very first thing he ever said to me was when are we getting married and i thought Lord, <laughs> this guy is weird i'm just surprised i didn't get a pool cue across the head <laughs> so for about two years he asked me out and i was like my mother would kill me if i went out with a guy who played in bars for a living i mean this just wasn't up my alley so um we didn't go out but um Two years later, we did, and um, I went back to school, and and we um, he would call me five or six times a day. He sent me flowers every single week. I came home from Christmas break, and I said, I'm going to tell this guy to leave me alone, and um, I got out of the car with all intentions of doing that, and we saw each other every day Christmas break, and on New Year's Eve, he asked me to marry him. <laughs> He, we hadn't even said, I love you, or will you date me, any of that. Um, it was straight to, uh, will you marry me? <laughs> so, That's a tremendous well, that story. Was a, that was the second time to ask you, right? Yes. So <laughs> Life is short. Yeah. I never That's sang right. before. And, um, well, you did in high, high school I, Yeah, choirs and things like that. But um, we... I just didn't and I didn't sing with John so it was three years and he had a demo deal with Warner Brothers and this wonderful wonderful lady sang backup 
on these five songs, Miss Kathy Matea. And oh, yeah. um, so I learned those five songs. He said, you need to come sing with us. Learn these five songs and get up on stage and sing. I think people will enjoy it. Yeah, so, so I did. Yeah, we're playing and, the clubs, and whenever we do those songs, she'd hop up on yes. stage and sing with us. And then when he did his showcase for Mr. Bowen, that was the five songs he did. I got up there and sang. And then the next thing mm -hmm. I know, there's a girl singing on the record, and I got a gig. I mean, I was very green, bless John's heart. I didn't even know how to listen to a monitor or do anything. I was so green trying to figure it all out, but he was very patient. Yeah. All right. She's an old pro now. See, Eric, oh, we, need a part, we need definitely going to need a part two to this. And I love your publicist, by the way. I've worked with her before, so awesome. we, we didn't have that tech. I'm sure you guys would love to come on and talk more faith and family with us for sure. And Eric, I think that we agree. But you could ask a, a potential question. We want to get people to go and, and listen to the podcast. Eric, do you have a follow-up question? Do you want to wait for part two that we have our – our question about the legacy question, they, their whole life is a legacy in so many ways. Do you want to wait on that? And then we'll just kind of jump into like a, where we can listen to the podcast now and then have part two. Uh, we can do that if that works. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. Where guys, where can we go ahead and, uh, and listen to the podcast? Where's the best place to go and stuff for that? If folks will go to my website, johnberry.com. Uh, that you'll see a picture of my lovely wife sitting with this scoundrel. And uh, right below it, there's a banner that says, click here uh, for, to subscribe. Click to subscribe to Faith, Family, and Friends. And there's two different levels. One is a basic level that is the podcast and message board. and uh, But then there's, uh, and that's called Faith, Family, and Friends. But the faithful is a whole lot of stuff. A whole it's kind of like an old-fashioned fan club where people have all kinds of access to to John and to and to me, and we get to do live concerts um, via live stream, and we get to they get free to passes to all kinds Absolutely. of events. It's it's very cool. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, appreciate you guys coming by. We're gonna have part two. I think it's a perfect fit. I have questions. Uh, to ask as well. We want to know about winning that Grammy and also about specifically your whole life of marriage and then some other amazing guests that you're going to be having on lately. So we'll definitely have you back on again. So thanks again for stopping by and, and take care. It's good Thank to be with you. All. So all right. Take care guys. Thank you. Celebrity slots. Free, Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today! We're back to Neil Haley's show on the Total Celebrity segment, and I'm excited to welcome to the program Keith Powell and Jill Knox of NBC's Connecting. Guys, thanks for calling, and you know what? I'm laughing because 
The question I ask every guest since the pandemic is, how are you surviving it? And now we have a show about surviving it. Isn't that funny? We're making TV show. (laughs) So I'm going to go really quickly right to my first question for Keith. Keith, when you first got this, I heard about this idea. What were your thoughts? Um, you know, I read it and I, I said, well, how is this going to happen? And, you know, we are now so used to Zoom calls um, and, and it, it now, you know, permeates our day. And how is this show going to do something new that, that makes people want to watch a Zoom, a, a show on a Zoom call? And what I really love about this show is how human and relatable and and lovely all of these characters are. And I think that it kind of, the Zoom kind of melts away and you really just connect to the people and the characters and what they're going through. Um, and hopefully you laugh with them, you laugh at them sometimes, you care about them. Yeah, and that's so true. And Jill, I'm laughing because the fact of the matter is that really all of us are living on Zoom calls. We're living, we're getting to see certain things. I interviewed Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold's kid had to jump in and during the interview. I interviewed, doing Zoom interviews, I've interviewed people that, you know, other props show up. And I'm like, okay, because we're all getting used to this. So really to think about it, everyone is kind of connecting and it's such a great name in, in the way of not just because you're in front of a computer screen, you're, you know, you're seeing everyone's life, Joe, really when you're on that zoom connection or whatever type of. Definitely. Yeah. And I think what's so fun about this show is that all of the actors are shooting in their own homes. So you aren't just seeing these actors exist on Zoom. You're seeing where they live and how they live. And we've brought in so much of our real lives, with the exception of our daughter um, and our dog. And our dog. He doesn't make an appearance on the show. <laughs> but you see so much of, of our real lives um, come, you know, play play out through this series. Um, you know, we so much of what we talk about are things that. I talk about with my own friend group and, and the characters that you'll see will feel, will feel so real that you'll just want to join our friend group. I think. (laughs) (laughs) So, so how do you create characters with zoom? I mean, like with uh, everyone connecting and having these relationships online, how do you create that? Keith, explain that the different characters on the show. Well, I, I actually think that it's a testament to the writing. Um, you know, you never feel like you never feel like you are stuck in these bubbles. Whole stories are being told, and I think that um, you know the the writers on the show, um, especially the showrunners Martin Garrow and and Brendan Gall, the two of them are just lovely human beings who understand different ways of thinking and different lifestyles and, and different thoughts that, um, that, that they are able to pour that into the script and you get to see whole stories and whole lives unfold, yes. um, kind of effortlessly. Um, well, it appears effortlessly. Um, and then, and then I also think that it's cast well. I think that all of us in the, in the show, 
are very close to who we are in real life and, and can relate to each other. We are a really close cast who really fell in love with each other very instantly. And I think that you'll see that love on the show. I appreciate you guys coming by. Everyone needs to go in, go to NBC.com and check out Connecting, premiering on the 8th on NBC. And thanks again for guys for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, take care. Thanks again. Bye-bye. You listen to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment.